Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 68 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. And today I'm joined by Dr. Satish Rao. But before we start today's show, I wanted to tell you about a super exciting event I am running in 2019. I've had many, many people ask me to run a SIBO retreat and I am thrilled to say I'm going to be holding the world's first SIBO retreat in July 2019 in Bali. It's going to be four days of complete SIBO pampering, amazing workshops, delicious SIBO-friendly meals, yoga, meditation, sunshine, swimming and lots of fun. Plus, you'll get to meet other amazing people who have SIBO just like yourself. I'm going to be holding the retreat with Kirsten Swales. She's a naturopath, a nutritionist and a medical herbalist and also has experienced IBS, SIBO and adrenal fatigue. We're both passionate about helping our fellow SIBOers live well with SIBO. So who better to run the world's first SIBO retreat than two women who have lived it themselves? If you've dreamt of travelling with SIBO but felt it was completely off limits, this is your opportunity to head to beautiful Bali and have a wonderful time with us. To make sure that this event is everything that you want it to be, we've got a super short survey that we would love you to fill out. So you can let us know, A, if you're interested in coming to the retreat and B, how we can make it perfect for you. And don't worry, there's absolutely no obligation to sign up. It just helps us to plan the perfect SIBO retreat for you. So head to thehealthygut.co forward slash SIBO retreat to learn more and to fill out that short survey. On today's show, we're joined by Dr. Satish Rao, who is a rare breed of academics who has excelled as an outstanding researcher, a distinguished educator and a master clinician. Dr. Rao's research interests focus on the pathophysiology and treatment of IBS, food intolerance, particularly fructose intolerance, constipation and faecal incontinence and visceral pain particularly esophageal chest pain. He has pioneered several new techniques of evaluating esophageal, gastric, colonic and anorectal function, in particular the brain-gut axis, and has received several patents and pioneered the technique of biofeedback therapy for dyssynergic defecation. He is currently investigating the neurobiologic mechanisms of biofeedback therapy and pioneering new treatments for fructose intolerance. Today, we speak about the connection between small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or SIBO, and small intestinal fungal overgrowth, or CFO. 
Now, to get access to the show notes from today's episode, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash SIBO and CFO. And if you'd like to get the full transcription from today's episode or any of the episodes from season two, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash SIBO and CFO and you can sign up for free as a member of the Healthy Gut podcast and you'll immediately get access to all of the transcriptions. I hope you enjoy today's episode with Dr. Satish Rao. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, Dr. Satish Rao. It's wonderful to have you on the show today. Thank you, Rebecca. Good to be on the show. My pleasure. Now, today we're going to be talking all about SIBO and CFO and uh, what that indeed is and, uh, and why we might need to consider it if we uh, have SIBO in the first instance. So can we start off with what is SIBO, what is CFO, and why might we need to think about it for our own health? All right, let me help you with that. So let's talk of the, uh, the acronym SIBO, which stands for Small Intestinal Bacterial Overgrowth. And the other one you mentioned is C4, which is something I coined, which stands for Small Intestinal Fungal Overgrowth. And these two conditions are fairly common GI problems that has not been well recognized until the past 10 years. People would attribute these unexplained symptoms to IBS or sometimes to functional dyspepsia or so on and so forth. Or many times, as I have designated in my publications, as unexplained GI symptoms. But gradually, through science, through research, through improved understanding, we've been able to tease out that these symptoms have an organic basis and they are most likely triggered by excessive amount of bacteria in the small bowel or fungus. And so how does one find out if they have a fungal overgrowth? And many of my listeners know how to to test for bacteria, but we will touch on that as well. But firstly... How do you know? Well, that's that's the perplexing question. How do you know you have it? And I think you don't know, and it is very hard for any physician to tease it out either because the symptoms of patients with C4 are similar to those of patients with SIBO. And even after testing, when we identify those who have C4, their symptoms are fairly similar to those patients who don't have C4. So in other words, symptoms are very poor predictors of the underlying condition. And thus we need, in addition to symptoms, we need a test to truly identify the problem. If we touch on the types of symptoms, it's very broad and it doesn't necessarily indicate C4, but what are the general symptoms somebody may experience? Great question. So the symptoms to look out for are unexplained and persistent bloating, distension, gas, abdominal pain with cramping sensation, 
and nausea. These five symptoms, I think, are seen in 60 to 85% of patients in more than two series that we have published. These series were patients over 100 to 150 patients, in two separate series, uh, and in two different geographic locations in the United States, one in Iowa and the other one from Georgia, we found fairly similar prevalences of symptoms. So those five are the main ones that actually um, broadly represent some form of upper gut dysfunction or dysbiosis, if you like. I often hear from people who say, I've um, had SIBO, I've treated it, I've come back with a negative breath test, but I still experience uh, chronic bloating. Uh, so it sounds like if, if, you know, for the person that's listening that thinks, oh, that's me, that investigating CFO could well be part of a next step forward for them. Yes, I think there are two parts to that uh, question, really, is whether this SIBO investigation needs to be improved, and we can talk about it. Uh, but I think more specifically, you were asking, could that be CFO? Absolutely, it can be CFO. And that is something that we've missed uh, up till now. What is the prevalence of CFO in the CBO community? So the best way to answer that is going through our data in 134 patients with symptoms that we've published. And what we found was that there were 25% of patients who had exclusive CFO. There were about 20 well, about 30% of patients who had exclusive SIBO. So that is 55% now. And the remaining 45% had mixed SIBO and CFO. So you can see this is the rough prevalence of the SIBO, CFO population. There will be a quarter who have only fungal and no bacteria. So for example, the patient you just mentioned could have that, especially if a SIBO was identified and treated and they have persistent symptoms, and that's because the C4 has not been either picked up or treated. Mm. And so how have you been able to uh, diagnose or identify that it, it is CFO at play rather than, so for those exclusive CFO patients in your studies, how did you identify them? So I think currently the only way to identify C4 accurately is by doing an endoscopy, which is, you know, passing a camera through the mouth into the beginning of the small bowel, which we routinely do, called upper GI endoscopy, and taking juice from the second or third part of the duodenum. Typically, it, the whole procedure of taking the juice takes only five minutes, and the endoscopy takes about 10 to 15 minutes. It's a routine procedure we do. And as part of the procedure, the additional thing that we're doing is collecting the juice from the small bowel. And as I said, that takes only another two to four minutes. But we collect it under aseptic precautions to prevent contamination. And then we immediately send the juice to the microbiology lab. The microbiology lab is routinely not accustomed to receiving duodenal juice samples. They will get a throat swab for strep throat or urine for urinary culture or a stool for a patient with gastroenteritis to look for infection, but not duodenal juice. So labs that want to set up, or gastroenterologists who are hearing this, want to really develop this, they will need to talk to the microbiologist upfront 
and, and make sure that they have a symbiotic relationship and understanding of what they're looking for. And once they get that sample of uh, juice, if they plate it for standard cultures, for fungus or bacteria, and if there's any growth, that will show up um, as a positive test. Now, there will be small amounts of fungus routinely in most samples, and that is not what we're calling as fungal overgrowth. In order to qualify as a definitive patient who warrants treatment, we define C4 as the presence of 1,000 or greater number of candida or fungus uh, per colony forming unit. It's called 10 to the power of 3 CFU per ml. So it sounds like a, a patient really needs to have a gastroenterologist as part of their team, their medical team, to be able to um, provide this type of assessment. What if somebody doesn't have a GI doc uh, that they're currently seeing or, or perhaps they don't have one in a nearby area? Uh, what, what could they do to, to try and get themselves assessed for CFO? So I think that is a real challenge at this point in time. To be accurate, I think this is the only way we can do it. There is no stool test that's going to help us. There is no blood test that's going to help us. And in the future, maybe we may have to develop more uh, specific and sensitive non-invasive tests. But there's no breath test, for example, at this stage that we can offer. So if there is a high index of suspicion, then the only other way that one should be able to handle this is by empirical treatment. And that would be giving three weeks of antifungal treatment. I don't really think that that's harmful in the long term, especially when a patient has had other evaluations and testing and then has had some treatments and still not responsive, then it would not be totally unreasonable to offer a course of antifungal treatment. If they get better, it's great. Uh, if they don't get better, then maybe that may be another time to really go back and more seriously search for an underlying cause. What, what about the patient that has seen, say, a naturopathic doctor or um, some kind of functional practitioner who's run a stool test and it's come back and said that they can see a fungal overgrowth on a stool test? I, I regularly hear from people who say, oh, I have candida or I have a... a um, uh, fungal overgrowth because my stool test says I do and and you've said that it's not an accurate way of testing. Are you able to just explain um, why a stool test isn't an accurate way of diagnosis given I know many of my listeners may well have that uh, those results on a stool test and been told you do have a fungal overgrowth? So there is a ton of candida in stool routinely. We all have candida. We have candida in the skin, we have candida inside the mouth or sometimes in the oral pharynx and so on. That is all normal for us to have that level of candida and likewise in stool. So just because you have candida in stool test does not mean you have a candida infection in the small bowel. That is normal for it to be there. Normally there should be virtually no candida in the small bowel, especially the area where we are testing. So that is why it has a, such a high specificity in identifying this problem in terms of, in terms of a, a true medical problem. Mm. So once a person has identified that they do have CFO or perhaps they don't and, and their practitioner and themselves have decided we'll do some treatment to see if this helps improve symptoms, what types of treatments are available for, for the uh, 
person that has SIBO and SIBO, CFO or perhaps just CFO on, on its own? That's a good question, hey? I've got loads more just like this coming up after this break. We'll be back in a moment. Once a person has identified that they do have CFO or perhaps they don't and, and their practitioner and themselves have decided we'll do some treatment to see if this helps improve symptoms, what types of treatments are available for, for the uh, person that has CBO and CBO, CFO or perhaps just CFO on, on its own? So let's talk about CFO as we are on the topic itself. So my main approach for them is to give them three weeks course of antifungal therapy preferably with fluconazole. This is a, a simple drug, relatively uh, well-tolerated with not too many side effects and so on, 100 milligrams once a day for three weeks. Rarely I would give nystatin. Uh, I'm a little unsure and unclear whether nystatin really will stick around in the small bowel. The evidence to support that is small. Fluconazole, on the other hand, gets absorbed and then it, it, it is in the bloodstream and then it works throughout the gut and elsewhere whereas nystatin does not get absorbed, so we don't know whether it's destroyed in the stomach acid or it will go further downstream. So that is the unknown. So that is my go-to drug. In more refractory patients, I use other antifungals. When it comes to SIBO, uh, I use usually antibiotic sensitivity guided approach. What I mean by that is when we do the culture, the culture picks up various bacteria and then my microbiologist reports, oh, you have Klebsiella. This Klebsiella is sensitive to Bactrim, or it is sensitive to metronidazole or whatever. So based on that, I would direct my treatment. If I have a patient in whom I've identified SIBO on the basis of a breath test, then I don't know what organism is there. So I then have to make a guess based on their allergy profile, and of course in America, we have insurance constraints. So based on those two, I will pick an appropriate antibiotic, or if they've used previous antibiotics and I want to pick something that they've not used. So it's not a simple algorithm, but based on all of these factors. But typically, I would use either rifaximin or uh, this combination of amoxicillin with clavulunic acid, it's called augmentin, or I would use cotrimoxazole. Uh, and I used to use a lot of ciprofloxacin and levofloxacin, but I've now tended to stray away from those because a lot of patients are complaining about this floxacin toxicity and so on, which confuses the picture. But if I'm guided by my microbiologist that that is the best, then I will use it. But these are my typical go-to drugs for managing SIBO. Let's talk about the flora or, or the spread of uh, the types of bacteria that are found in the small intestine. How important is it that we know what is there uh, rather than just saying, oh, there is an overgrowth? Um, because for many people, there is not an assessment of what is there. It's just there is an overgrowth because the breath test is sort of the most commonly used method to diagnose um, a bacterial overgrowth. So I think, you know, there are a number of my colleagues uh, are developing more sensitive tests 
for the presence of bacteria. And that is based on the presence of the bacterial RNA. And this is a very, very sensitive test. Now, but you just need one bacteria to be a positive test. And with those sensitive analysis, we are picking up a lot more bacteria in the small bowel testing, uh, just from the same sampling like we are doing. The question really is, are they pathogenic? or they just happen to be there. And that is a science that has yet to evolve, and we don't know what is the significance of the presence of these bacteria. Do they actually have a beneficial role in the small bowel? We don't understand that either. Or they are pathogenic. So that is where there has been some scientific debate about when do you call the presence of bacteria abnormal or related to symptoms, and at what concentration? Uh, after a lot of debate as part of a consensus document, we concluded that if there are 1,000 or more colony-forming units, then we consider that as abnormal. Unlike a typical urine culture, where we would call it 100,000 or more before we call it a positive infection. So we've, and the reason why we lowered the bar is because unlike urine, in the duodenum or in the stomach, there's a ton of acid, and acid is a bactericidal agent. It kills all bacteria. So you don't expect bacteria in the stomach or in the duodenum, which is constantly bathed by acid. And therefore, we felt that if we are picking up bacteria, even at a lower concentration, but a reasonably, uh, uh, a, a kind of a, if you like, a, a compromised concentration, not 100, not 10, not 1, uh, but at the same time, not 100,000, we thought 1,000 seems a reasonable compromise. And that was expert consensus and that's what we now use as a cutoff to define SIBO. Now, as you quickly asked is, oh, well, what about, there may be lots of other bugs, and there are, and we yet don't know what role they're playing and what is the significance. Of those bacteria that you're finding in the small intestine, are, th are they all from the large bowel? Uh, where are they coming from? And this is a question I often get asked, where have my small intestine uh, bacteria actually come from? Two sources. One, I think, from food, uh, which I think is a bigger source. I think we all eat food that is full of bacteria. And, but fortunately, for majority of us, those bacteria are being killed by gastric acid or they are pushed rapidly in the presence of normal motility or neutralized by mucus and so on and so forth and essentially harm, rendered harmless. But that is the number one source. Additionally, there is transmigration of bacteria from the colon backwards. And this can happen in a number of situations, including poor motility, drugs that impair motility, people who've had surgery in the small bowel or the large bowel, or in whom the ileocecal barrier has been removed or compromised. Then the bugs from the colon, which is, has got a trillion bacteria, some of which will spill over, and then bacteria migrate up. Bacteria would love to be in the small bowel, really. So because there is, there is a lot more food around, but we have such efficient mechanisms in the small bowel, including oxygenation and so on, that prevents it from adhering to the small bowel mucosa. And the same question goes for the fungal overgrowth. Is, is that where is the fungal coming from? Is it that it should always be there just in sm much smaller quantities? Has it migrated back up from the large bowel? Uh, are we consuming it? I know my listeners will be thinking, well, if I've got CFO, where did the foe come from? Right. I think it is in every f food, once again. I mean, fungus is present in a lot of food. 
we consume it all the time. Of course, you know, when we see, uh, for example, we put food in the fridge or something, after a while you say, oh my gosh, you know, yeah, that's got yeast in it, I'm not going to eat that. But that has that is a solid excessive growth that you're seeing it. But other times you're not seeing it because there is such microscopic amounts of it. So we're all eating fungus all the time. <laughs> what a, it's quite a gross thought really, isn't it? <laughs> um, before we finish up, I want to talk about diet. Uh, do you uh, put your patients on a, um, a specific candida diet? Uh, and if so, what do you do with them? Well, that's a great question. I honestly don't have a good answer. This is something my patients ask me all the time. I have tried to do research on it and have not found good evidence-based support. And I've also, more important, I've actually charged my nutritionists and dietitians to help me with this. And they have essentially come up with a blank. And so they, because the American Dietary Association doesn't endorse any diet, so they, as practitioners of the society guidelines, they refuse to really get involved in the diet issue. But some of my patients have found different kinds of diet help. They've been guided by other people who are well-known experts up and down the country. They've read some books, and they find it very helpful. But the first important thing is really eliminating the fungus or the bacteria. I think diet probably has a very important role in preventing recurrence because something is triggering it. And as we talked about, where are we getting the bacteria and the fungus? Clearly from our diet. Therefore, by changing the diet, in addition to eradicating the primary infection, together, I think, will lead to long-term success in the management of our patients. But that exact diet, I'm going to be looking forward to people like yourself who are really writing on that and others to guide us and the patient population. And do you treat one before the other or do you treat both SIBO, CFO at the same time? And do your patients have uh, sort of strong die-off reactions or stronger die-off reactions when they're, um, when they're dealing with both CFO and SIBO? So um, I have seen the die-off reactions, but not as much as people talk about it. It's sometimes harder to tease out whether it is the known antibiotic or antifungal side effect or whether it's a true die-off. It, it's a little uh, harder for us to tease out. These are all well-known uh, side effects that we will uh, we experience when patients take it for non-SIBO, C4 conditions as well. If you have a chest infection or a strep throat, we're going to give them amoxicillin. They have reactions to that, particularly diarrhea and nausea and abdominal discomfort are well-known side effects of all of these antibiotics. So it's hard many times to tease out. So with regards to which one I would treat first, I always treat SIBO first if SIBO is present because after SIBO treatment, they're likely to get C4. So I treat SIBO first, and then I continue with C4 treatment. Because if I do the other way around, then their C4 is eradicated, but then the institution of SIBO antibiotic will now cause C4. Well, that's really interesting that you see a um, higher prevalence of CFO once SIBO. And why is that occurring? Well, that's really because, you know, there is a, the, the bacteria check fungal overgrowth. So there is, they, they, they fight with each other. And when you remove, when you destroy the bacteria, there is no opposition to the fungus. It'll overgrow very fast. And that's been known for a very long time because people, many times after antibiotics, they get thrush. And that's why people report vaginal thrush, sore throat thrush, thrush in the mouth after antibiotic use. And that's because that 
fungus which was there suddenly has nobody to check it anymore and it just overgrows. Mm. And the same thing will happen in the small bowel too. That's fascinating and I'm sure there's a few aha moments happening right now with people listening to the podcast thinking, oh, that explains a lot. Dr. Satish Rao, thank you so much for sparing your uh, very busy schedule to come onto the SIBO, onto the Healthy Gut podcast today to talk about SIBO and CIFO. Now, my listeners love to connect with the guests I have on the show. How can people reach out and uh, and see more of your amazing work or um or connect with you? So I think the easiest way to reach out to me is via email. So it is sro at augusta.edu. I work at the uni- Augusta University. I'm a professor there. So that's the easiest way to reach me. And I'll be happy to help people if they have any questions specific questions. Wonderful. And that email is in the show notes as well. So thank you so much once again for coming on to the podcast today. Thank you, Rebecca. It's a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Dr. Satish Rao. To get access to the show notes from today's episode, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash SIBO and CFO. And don't forget, guys, if you would like the full transcription from today's show or any other episode from season two, all you need to do is sign up as a member of the Healthy Gut podcast. It's absolutely free to do this and then you will get access to every transcription from every show in season two. Head to thehealthygut.co forward slash SIBO and CFO to sign up today. And don't forget to leave a rating and review in Apple Podcasts, Acast or any of the apps you use to listen to this show. It really is fantastic hearing your feedback and it also helps other people know that this is the right podcast for them. And come say hi to us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest and Google+. You can find us under The Healthy Gut. You've been listening to The Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about The Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Red Lemon Productions for the production and original music score of this podcast. To find out more about their services, head to redlemonproductions.com. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening.